Hi guys, Gareth here, co-founder of Thrive App, and I'm here with my other co-founder, Jeremy, who also happens to be my brother-in-law. Thank you, Gareth, and hi, everyone. Hey, Joe. <laughs> yeah, hi, sis. So yes, we've barged in on Britain and on Google Play, and what we're hearing from our members is it's doing exactly what it says on the tin. It's helping them to design and live their very best life. And right now, Float Your Boat listeners can download and join the beta version for free. Free? What sort of business model is that? It's a great one. And if you want to get access to the upcoming Thriver Plus release, which also has your personal AI coach, Max, and your Five to Thrive Best Life system, then pre-register on www.thriverapp.com to access some upcoming Kickstarter rewards. All right, can I, can I jump back in here? You sure can, BFAM. All right, so I really want to let the listeners know that Thriver App already has over 4,000 behavioral change tools that can help them embed the habits and the life systems of some of the world's best minds. 100%. So if you like the idea of having your own personal AI coach in your pocket, helping you live your best life every day, then again, jump on thriverapp.com and register for our exclusive Kickstarter perks. All right, we best hand back to Brett and George now. So cheers, guys. Drinks are on us. Cheers, everyone. See you on Thriver App. So... Where are you, Brett? What are you doing? We're on the air. Are you uh, a professional or what? I I guess I'd better put my professional hat on. Uh, Look, I've just been told that uh, that the computer's telling me to leave the meeting. I don't want to leave the meeting. So, Brett, hello. Hello. I'm good. You? So, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to use that typical one-liner, that intro one-liner where I'm excited, but in this instance... I have to say, I'm terribly happy to have our next guest come on our show. Why is that, George? Well, you know, anyone who's our age or, or uh, just slightly younger would remember the days at uh, you know of Paul Keating and uh, you know uh, where he where he talked to the uh, leader of the opposition one day. It was famously, and he famously said, "I'll do you, I'll do you slowly," and that was John Hewson, right? Yep. But little do people know that actually came from one of the characters, quintessential characters uh, in Australian history called Roger Rogerson. Roger, Roger. Yeah. Roger liked to Roger. Don't say that, my friend, because he could be listening to this podcast. Anyway. anyway. From his cell. Yes. 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 Hi, Roger. How are you, Roger? I hope the coffee's good and the meals are uh, slimming. But anyway, uh, t- so today we, we actually have the author of a book on Roger Rogerson. His uh, name is Duncan McNabb. Now, he's an um, interesting fellow, actually. He's, um, he's, he's done everything, really. He's, he's, he's been everywhere, done everything. He's it's remarkable, really. He's, a, he's an ex-copper. Yep. He was a detective in the New South Wales Police Force. Uh, right. He then went on. Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, yep. He then went on to be a private investigator. Yep. And he also ended up being an investigative journalist and also, you know, ended up on, you know, Channel 7 and ABC as a, as a reporter. Um, we won't hold that against him. No. Oh, God. You know, I mean, he was uh, he was uh, With Koshy. a mixed bag of... Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know if it was with Koshy. We'll ask him. But he, he was an advisor to the government, apparently. I don't know uh, how. Uh, he was... Um, and, and private industry. Uh but but more famous, he, he like I said, he's the author of, a, of about seven books. In fact, right. wow, seven. probably more, probably more. Um, some of them were bestsellers, like Dead Man Running, um, and Outlaw Bikers in in Australia, the Waterfront, Getting Away with Murder. That's a good one. I'm going to ask him about how we can get away with murder. Yep. Not that I want to do that. Um, Except for your wife. Yeah, yeah. Well, that might come, but I better not admit that. On public radio, she doesn't listen to the podcast anyway because she hates no, she you. Doesn't. And... <laughs> she doesn't. She doesn't. So, surprisingly, she doesn't think I'm any good at it. Anyway, um, wow. Uh, so, so you aren't, uh, probably aren't. Yeah, you probably aren't. You know those those books. You know, it's quite quite bizarre. It's a tongue in cheek. It was uh, published by Hatchet Hatchet Publishing Company. Couldn't have been anybody else, could it? Really? <laughs> no, no, no. But then he went on to uh, you know. Um, author a couple of other books um, like Killing Mr. Rentakill. Do you remember Mr. Rentakill? No, I don't, and I don't want to. I, I don't want to uh, go on about that right now. Okay, and, 
And um, a strange one, a strange one out of the blue, Mission 101, which is the story of Australian soldiers in Ethiopia in World War I. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. that's a bit left, of, left field, isn't it? Yeah, it is out of left field. Now, for someone, for someone our age, he's a prolific Twitterer. Just like he's a twit, like like Donald Trump, prolific. No, well, there's a twit. Well, if I've yes. ever heard of one. Let's just say, let's just say his uh, his manner and his and his uh, writings are a little bit more eloquent than um, that other fellow from across the the Pacific. You know, God. So well, that wouldn't be hard. Not hard at all. But uh, he, and surprisingly, as, as an like he started off his career as a copper, like, as I. Uh, as I said to you uh, before, he's quite eloquent and That's good. Can, can string more than a, a dozen dozen words together. So just before we start, I, I, I'd like to address the uh, the elephant in the room, which was our last interview, which was Charlie Staunton. Oh, yeah. And uh, we well, had a little – well, we had a bit of backlash, didn't we, from some of our listeners? Well, I didn't. No, they appeared on my Facebook page. They did. They did because you're the only one who's active on Facebook. That's out correct. Of the two of us. Yes. Well, it wasn't. What happened? Well, what I, happened there? Oh, I'm, I, I'm not sure, but I just did want to say that um, it was. It has been one of our most popular podcasts this season. So it obviously um, tickled the fancy of a lot of people. Um, tickled the what? Tickled, tickled their fancies, their oh. fancy bits. <laughs> but. But I just want to say that, look, we, uh, we don't censor anybody, do we? We'll have anybody on, on our program that has a story and a story to tell and we're not going to be judge and jury on anybody, especially Charlie um, <laughs> or anybody else. Whether no, blo- no bloody way. That was whole, the whole idea of this podcast was to let people share their stories. Yes, and stories of people that aren't necessarily on the television or on the media all the time, mm. um, just people with good stories. And Charlie had a good story, and he still yes. has. And we'll probably and we're going to get him back on for a follow up because we, we didn't will. get the second half of his story. Um, so if you if you're offended by any of our stories or or offended by language or whatever, you all you have to do right is press is. You just press stop is? and you go off. Oh, stop. Yeah, you just you just press, you just go on to another podcast, go on to Mamma Mia or... That's not what we'd say down at the beach. What would we say down at the beach? We'd, we'd say, say get stuffed. Get stuffed. Probably. Up yours. Go. Go yeah. on. You don't like it, piss off. You don't have to listen to us. <laughs> we, we, know we're, we, know, we know that we're uh, hypnotic and mesmerising, but, you know, <laughs> bad luck. That's why they... That's why... Regardless of whether they're fuming, they stay to the end, right? Because they just like the sound of our voices. They like hearing us fuck up, basically. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's hilarious that we live in a world where, you know, there's, there's um, an overriding need to censor uh, your comments and, and to censor people if, oh, my God, if, they're not, if they don't fit in the middle of the bell curve, woe be you. I think it... Yeah, it is a, a a Facebook and Twitter phenomenon where people, um, agree, you know, like if you don't agree with their stance, then you're a bastard or an asshole, um, and it and it seems to be getting worse and worse. And like I say, we're not going to censor anybody. Um, you know, no. it's, it's not like Charlie was a priest in a boys' school or anything. <laughs> you know? oh, I shouldn't. I shouldn't laugh at that. What? What are you? What are you implying? Kevin? I shouldn't Brett? say that because that's generalising, isn't it? That is terrible, Brett. That is absolutely terrible. Apologies <sighs> to uh, George Pell. Don't worry. We'll, we'll get a we'll get a few saints on in the next few episodes just I to think, balance it, balance will. up the sheets. Well, we're, we're we're doing that in a way. We're doing that with today's guest. So why don't we get him on? Yes. What was his name again? <laughs> Duncan, Duncan McNabb. Duncan, here we go. I'm looking forward to this episode, and we're gonna you bloody hopeless. rock and roll. Obviously, you defied me. Goodbye, again. George. Get out of darkness! 
Welcome to the Float Your Boat podcast about how everyday people created their road to success. The highs, the lows, pitfalls and potholes and how they overcame it all. And now, here are your hosts. Yes. Say hello to Duncan. Hi, Duncan. We've, Duncan, we've, 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 already done, we've already done the intro, Duncan, so... Uh, Welcome to our show. So how so how long were you in the force for, Duncan? Um, 25th of September 1977 through to about the 5th or 6th of December 1986. Right. Nine years to the or nine years almost to the day. From now. And and uh, what uh, led you to leave the police force? What was the reason? After a couple of years, I realised that I was surrounded by some very nice people, some very decent, honourable people some great hard workers and a pack of most appalling crooks you could ever want to see. It's like, like bordering a pirate ship. Um, <laughs> towards, towards the end of that tenure, I also encountered a bloke called Roger Rogerson, who I sort of keep bumping into around my life. And I thought, this is just not on, sorry. So you either stay and go with the flow or you get out. Right. Yeah, look. Let's go back. Let's go back to when you when you started. In you you left the police academy. I'm assuming you you were trained up at Redfern. Is that correct? Yeah, Down yeah. at the yep. what is now a, a stable and a Buddhist retreat. Uh, yeah, which, which is quite bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, considering what you learned behind those walls it was hardly Zen. Well, <laughs> well, what what kind of things do you remember learning behind those walls? Like just just uh, you know a few things that really come to mind. Well, how to march and try and stay in step, that was always tricky. Um, how to run five kilometres every morning without throwing up on somebody you knew. Um, and both just good, and good solid training in police work too, how to do things, the law, what you can do, what you can't do, what you might be able to try but let them get away with. <laughs> um, and old-fashioned things that we don't do these days, like learning certain things by rote. Right. I remember 50 odd years later almost. Um, so those things are really handy. So you come up with a good general, a good grounding in what you can do. Yes. Oh, how to wear a uniform, how to polish your boots, and yes. uh, how, to, how to fire a gun periodically. Um, I take it you've learned how to iron a shirt and put the crease in the right spot. So you still like that today? No, I get someone to do it. Yeah, that's very smart. Very yeah, smart. Yeah. So, yeah, so. So there, were, there, there was some flexibility in the learning, was there about back then, or in in the coaching back then, in terms of what you could do, what you couldn't do, and what you could kind of, kind of do. Good old fashioned solid legal subjects. Bang! Here it is. This is what it looks like. This is what you've got to know. Operational stuff, as well, to save your life. Which I, you know, you still remember. It's always amusing. You watch a, a TV program where the detective goes up and knocks on the door and stands there. Yeah, no copper ever properly trained will ever stand in front of the door because you know full well that some clown behind it might decide to let loose with a couple of shots, and therefore you're going to be a target. <laughs> so you never look through a peephole on the door, and you never, if you knock on the door, you actually stand to one side just in case the lock blows off. You still do those things. <laughs> do you still do you still do those things? Not continuously. Yeah. Right. Never so you, you can never life. you can never be too cautious given what you did since writing all those books. But anyway, we'll get to them yeah, in a minute. I, I, look, I suppose learning things by rote, even if it's actually a physical thing, it's not such mm. a bad move sometimes because you 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 always defer to that practice rather than put yourself in a stupid spot. And this is why when you I watch you watch TV series, you think, wow, why could you? I hire an advisor for at least five minutes. <laughs> well, you but, but you didn't you didn't you graduated from the academy, but no one goes straight from the academy to becoming a detective. No, what, I, hap what no, happened in between? Uh, you, well, you, everyone goes into uniform back in those days. I think, mm -hmm. you say, thank God. And you go back and just do the mundane general duties police work, which for some they do it all their lives, um, and it's a great. The people who like that sort of thing, it's fantastic. For people like me, you sort of look towards getting out of that bloody uniform as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and I was out of it within uh, little, little under eighteen months. Is that right? But and which which station were you? Which station were you posted at? Manly. Oh, okay, okay. So you got to see people on the beach every day. Yeah, well, it was actually an easy drive up from home. Um, yeah, yeah, you got to see you got to see people on the beach. You up to North Head and see people who weren't congregating, according yep. to the New South Wales Police. Yep. Um, 
those of us who are interested in contemporary stuff, you summer's days, you'd be down at the Manly Beach arresting um, young trainee priests from up the hill who'd been up to something naughty in the bloody dunnies. So, <laughs> yes, a phone call up at the head of the seminary okay. saying, we've got another two down here for you. Could you come pick them up? It was, you know, it was busy. That's and right. Beach, oh, I suppose. What are, you, what are you implying, Duncan? Oh, you know, yeah. There was probably no implication there. It actually happened. Oh, no, that was, it was very, very busy. But, you know, beachside suburbs are great for coppers to learn how to do things because you've got that huge summer influx of people. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, a, it's a magnet. As, uh, coppers refer to it, I think, quite accurately. The beaches are a shit magnet. So oh. you get all the lovely people down there and you get all the nice people who prey on them. Oh, Okay. Okay. Uh, it's that lovely mix of stuff. And, of course, while they're on the beach, their hoodlums are doing braconettas. And down on the beach, they're scooping up their bits and pieces. They're scooping gates, pinching their wallets. Or yeah. you only get the other creeps who spend their time on the beach trying to pick up young boys, young girls, you know, the scams that run on the beach. I suppose a couple of years ago, I wrote a book on a bloke called Christopher Wilder who used to pretend to walk a lot and he used to love Manly Beach. And his scam at Manly Beach was to have a camera dangling around his neck, wander up to nice young girls who are about 16 to 20 and say, I'm a modelling agent. Would you like me to take your picture? And um, he was very convincing. And they'd wander off with him, take them for a ride somewhere, then he'd sexually abuse them. Um, and then he graduated and went to the US and probably murdered at least 10 girls I can think of using the same scam. So that's the sort of interesting people that come to beaches. Mm. Um, it's that whole broad spectrum of humanity, the decent, the honourable, and the people who just find them targets. Mm, yeah, right. I mean, we'll, we'll it's get, a good place to learn fast. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get to him um, yep. later in the interview because he, he sounds like a fascinating uh, character, not, but, you know, very interesting. Um, you know, you, you were, I mean, you, were, you, said, you said you couldn't wait to get out of the bloody uniform, but you... But you actually joined the police force knowing that you were going to have to wear a uniform and you, oh, didn't, yeah. and you didn't like the idea. But in those um, days, you also looked towards probably being a cop until you retired at 65 too. So, right. Yeah. yeah you, right. But it, you've got to do this. Back in those days too, it was a very – possibly more so than it is now. It's, it was very structured. You couldn't get promoted in the first five years and then you're promoted on seniority. So right. one of the great quirks of policing, which I always enjoyed, is the very senior – uniformed blokes would be looking through what they call the stud book, the seniority list. And if someone died, <laughs> resigned, or came in with misfortune, they'd delightfully pull it out and put a line through them saying, one closer. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> so you, you have to accept that you're going to be in uniform for a, a period. You just try and make it the briefest one possible. But you right. got out. You got out pretty quickly. I mean, by by any standard, eighteen months in uniform and then going to become a detective, Absolutely. kind of, yeah. it kind of indicates that you knew someone. Nah, no, I just I was. Well, people recognise me and they tell it. No, they, look, they're always looking for you. You passed all the tests, did you? You passed all the tests, and you know you pass them with a reasonable degree of ease. You know what the tests are going to be when you go into the the early selection process because all of your, uh, the blokes you're working with tell you what the questions are going to be and the questions probably haven't changed and Christ was in short trousers. Now you've got a rough idea what the questions are and if you're not sufficiently, sorry, if you're reasonably bright to, to work on the questions, you'll probably get the answers right. Some guys weren't that clever um, and they'd struggle with them, but, you know, some are well, all... Accepted. I mean, these are guys you... These are guys going going for the role of detective. You're telling me they were they couldn't even pass a test. Oh, some of them, yeah, they could scrape by. But some of them, had, back in those days, they had other characteristics. One bloke who went on to a particularly high office in the New South Wales Police Force, his greatest skill was the fact that he had very very large hands and didn't mind belting people. Yes. So people were realised for different realised for different talents. Yes. Um, and those talents, I suppose, became more obvious as you grew through the process too. Some coppers were just malleable. Mm-hmm. Rogers and they realised great talent with Roger and Roger sort of went one way. Mm. Um, others of us weren't particularly adept at that sort of thing or interested, so we were left on our own to just do what we can do. You know? and if you're reasonably bright and reasonably capable, you end up doing quite a lot of work. And hence, the, hence, hence all the, the, the history and the background knowledge regarding um, the content in a lot of your books. Yeah, yeah. You, yep. you, you knew how it all worked and then... We took it from there. So it's a you know, valuable experience. Yeah, so where did you end up as a detective? 
Um, first, back in the oh, back in the seventies, um, first gig was at Manly in plain clothes, which is our right. stuff. And then the tradition was you you had no choice. You went to something called Twenty One Division, which has a certain sinister history in New South Wales policing. It was um, it's where all young detectives went for training. You just basically cruise around trying to see what you could pick up. Um, Twenty One was sort of it did gaming and betting, which I was found completely unsuitable for, mm-hmm. um, which is good because I was even remote, not even remotely interested in arresting some poor bastard running a book in a pub but it was very fashionable in the eighties. Um, or you uh, went into criminal investigation, which is where I ended up just basically cruising around being first on the scene if something happened or working the cross, particularly looking for crooks and ne'er-do-wells who really shouldn't have been walking around. You should have been behind bars. So that's what you did. You mm-hmm. learn, you learn to pick up, you learn to see the symptoms of crooks and think we need to have a chat come this way. Yeah. Right. Have a look at them, see what they're up to. You know, you, they might be reasonably innocent. They might be wanted for a series of crimes. They might be strolling around the cross with a bloody great gun on their back. So, you know, you pick them, have a talk to them, get to know them. Were those days a bit like uh, that line out of Casablanca, you know, round up the usual suspects? Is that is that what used to happen? Yeah, and the usual suspects. Well, you, yeah, we round the usual suspects up, but invariably because they were usual suspects because they'd done something. But the faces became apparent. And working across in those days, you learned who the major criminal players were and who was working for them. So you got a rough idea of how crime in New South Wales worked. It wasn't as segmented as it is now. Back right. in those days, the cross and Darlinghurst was a magnet for them all. And you learned how to deal with them, how to talk to, how to, talk to people, develop relationships of a, a kind with them. And often it was just, a, you know, they hadn't done anything wrong, but you nodded at each other, you know, who they knew who you were, you knew who they were. And it's that sort of intelligence that is an incredibly important part of police work. And and, and was I, that enjoyable for you? Was, was that fantastic. yeah, yeah. And you learned a couple of things about how police work. You know, I can recall with a we pulled up very early at Twenty One Division. We pulled up in the truck, two of us and the very senior bloke, and we pulled up in Kellett Street, just in the middle of the cross. Oh, yeah. Stopped in Kellett Street. He's the senior bloke said, "Oh." the permanent staff member said, oh, mate, I'll be back in a couple of minutes. And two of us sitting innocently in the truck where he walks into the Continental Studio, which was a brothel. And 10 minutes later, he walks out and we're thinking to ourselves, oh, he's just going in for a hand job. Well, actually, he hadn't. We found out later he went in to pick up the weekly bag of money. That's how things worked. You know, two innocents just sitting there thinking, oh, I wonder what he could be in there for. Then we realised some years later that it was just, we just... Oh, they first didn't... Collected. They didn't get up to that kind of mischief, did they? Yeah, but, yeah. No, the, the 10-minute hand job. They didn't get into that. Oh, God, yeah. Well, five minutes, if it's wrong, depending on the age of the person. Um, <laughs> no, to, be, to put it politely, in those days, the CIB would it be in anything, including a shit sandwich, if there was a buck in it, a buck or a bit of fun. <laughs> so, so when did you when when did it dawn on you that you were in a <laughs> on that pirate ship? Well, it was slowly dawning on me. It took. It takes a while because part of the academy training, which I sort of mentioned earlier, is you you were taught about the spirit or the brotherhood, um, how you can only trust your mates, blah blah blah, us and them, and it's ingrained into you. And I suppose it should also come with a small um, overrider saying you really shouldn't pay too much attention to this because it's bullshit. Um, but you know you've got it ingrained into you. I. This thought there's a couple of interesting bits and pieces. And, you know, you're 21, 22, things are great. You're on a big adventure. But a couple of years into it, we, I got to the fraud spot after I'd finished my detective's course. Um, and I soon found that I was a pariah there because I sort of asked embarrassing questions quite frequently. Um, and I ended up working with a, a, a younger fellow, a couple of years younger than me, who was equally as obnoxious, uh, or sorry, equally as questioning. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, the the realization dawned fast and hard after that. He and I were given a brief um, to go and investigate and quote piss off end quote, and that's a direct quote by our boss. Just piss it off. So it was a, a significant fraud committed on an accountant uh, by his business partner. So anyway, we had a look at it and thought. I should be pissed this up. The guy's as guilty as sin. We'll go and lock him up instead. So we put the brief together appropriately, then went out and locked this little bastard up. Um, he turned up at an interview with an extremely expensive lawyer from a major law firm. Um, 
and I still remember the lawyer was giving us a spiel and my mate looked at him and said, you don't know much about criminal law, do you? And he didn't. <laughs> uh, so we got back to the office having done the arrest and found ourselves on the carpet in front of the boss being yelled at for doing the arrest. And I couldn't work out what the hell this is all about because it was a particularly good criminal brief. We had a you know, game set in man. Um, so he rang the complainant, the bloke who'd been ripped off, and we were having a chat with him. And he said, oh, mate, didn't they tell you? Didn't they tell us what? And he said, well, I went in to complain about it. Um, the bloke that's giving you a hard time wanted $10,000 to investigate the crime. And I told him to take a hike. So he said, what I'm told is afterwards that he, they went out and saw the bloke who was the erring party in it, and he hit him for $10,000 to piss it off. Right. Ah, we, right. We, put it politely, we urinated in the condiments quite substantially. Yeah, right. We first realised there's possibly a problem in the New South Wales Police Force. Mm. And then the longer the time you spend at the CIB, the more conspicuous it becomes. I worked at juvenile crime in the cross for 18 months, um, removing all sorts of poor kids from pretty much. Oddly enough, there's one of my old cases is coming back 40 years later. But um, he's in currently in jail for crimes he committed in King's Cross in 1981. He's awaiting extradition in Rotterdam. Small story on one side. But oh. we, we go around the cross picking up kids who are prostituting themselves and taking them back to places of safety and all that sort of jazz. Um, and there are a couple of places I went to, again, in Keller Street, which is quite popular, and I remember not demanding entrance to these places. And sort of, How dare you get in my way? Don't you know who I am? Um, that didn't work terribly well. And the next morning, one of them, I'm standing in front of the head of the CIB being told I'd be issuing parking tickets in Lightning Ridge if I persisted. <laughs> and on the lift, a couple of days later in the lift, a detective sergeant from the vice squad who was um, a rather poor sign gentleman with eyes like piss holes in the snow and an attitude to match, um, just quite, when the lift door was closed, he said, made a couple of interesting threats. I thought, oh, this is how it works. Oh, yeah, there you go. So that's how it all worked in those days. So, yes, the uh, the enchantment started to tarnish about three or four years in. And then you look for an exit. So so eventually you uh, got wise and yeah. and left. Um, but, you, but hang on. But, but you said that you got wise because of Roger? Is that uh, right? Roger was, about the, Roger was the last... My growing disappointment, I was in Shanghai to internal affairs and my growing disappointment was probably not a bad spot in internal affairs. What I soon realised is that they didn't investigate a lot of things. They managed to make things go away, which is problematic. Hmm. But one morning, it was such, oh God, June, June, 80, June, June, July, 84. Um, mornings, a couple of us would just gather in the boss's office for a coffee look out at the King's Cross from police headquarters from that lofty view on the 14th floor. Go through what had come in over the night before. And he was, the boss was a pleasant fellow, was looking quite concerned one morning. So he said, oh, mate, I've got this. And there were about four of us in the room. He said, oh, mate, I've got this terrible story. We've got this dying declaration from a bloke called Mick Drury, the detective, mm. who was at, who had been shot, had, was on his way to recovery then, had a complete collapse and was looking pretty grim at that stage. So they got the chamber magistrate from somewhere in. They do the propping, the proper dying deposition, I think it was, which at law carries an enormous amount of weight. There's a presumption that when you're about to cark it, that you won't lie, which if you've ever met a criminal, you know it's bullshit. <laughs> um, but in case we presume, of course, he, he was just telling the absolute truth. And the poor guy had been under enormous pressure leading up to this because what we didn't know is that a few coppers had been knocking on his door saying, I'll stand on the tubes if you don't tell the truth. If, sorry, if you tell the truth, we'll stand on the tube and that sort of stuff. And so Mick eventually does this dying declaration, deposition or whatever it was. Um, and it's a damning document. He tells what led up to his shooting in the Y. And it's sitting on the boss's desk and he passes it around to us. And we're ready thinking, Christ, he's alleging it. And this Roger Rogerson is behind having him whacked. Um, crossed on the cross. And we know the weight of this document at law. Um, and then the boss looks at it and shakes his head and said, ah, oh, mate, it could be Roger. He's too good a bloke. Mm. I thought, mm, time to leave. After I'd taken a copy of it, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the few of us managed to make sure it led to a newspaper. Yeah. 
that, and that's sort of where the Rogers saga took a turn. So well, that probably that probably led uh, led to your, uh, your your job later on in the newspapers. Yeah, yeah well, it turned out to be quite handy. No, they, they didn't offer me a job at all, damn. Oh, but, uh, I saw a bit of another. Well, I suppose another policeman's habit. We went off to a meeting journalist one night at the student print hotel in opposite Sydney University, opposite the entrance to veterinary science. And yeah. I remember we, we dressed down for the occasion so we wouldn't look like we were croppers. We walk into the public bar where we were supposed to meet the journalist in question. And then we did what coppers always do. Again, more training. You get in, you open the door, you stand in the doorway, and the first thing you do is stop and look around. And the bar goes dead quiet, a bit like the scene in the Western where the sheriff arrives. And one smart ass says, oh, shit, the coppers are here. This is great. How do we go to the ladies' parlour? Uh, anyway, so yeah, embarrassing. There we were trying to be. We thought we were so fucking careful about our discretion, and we were completely and utterly wrong. There you go. That's what happens. Uh, I, I just have a like. I have this. Uh, I mean, I, okay. So you you didn't quite. You, I mean, you you obviously handed your resignation in soon after. Is that correct? Yeah. Before you. I mean, after you swiped the um, or made a photocopy of. Yes. The... Yes. Well, I, I decided I wanted to get out as fast as possible. I was extremely unhappy. Internal affairs. My time was up there as it always. You have. Yeah. And the routine was you can go anywhere you want after you've been to internal affairs. And I gave them a list of places that I would be content to go and have a look at. Homicide would be the first one, a few other squads. And they said, ah, no, sorry about that. We're sending you to Central Detectives, which, you know, if you wanted to be sent down the gutter, that's where it is. Yeah, so right. I wander into Central Detectives. And there is, at one table, there's a guy called Graham Fraser, who is still with us, who was, a, shall we say, under a significant cloud. And another table was Trevor Haken, who later became famous at the Royal Commission. Yeah. Well, this is great. Just Trevor, Graham, myself, and a lot of very, very active cockroaches on the floor. So, you know, terrific resignation time. See you later. And now, here's a word from our sponsor. Hi, it's Gino from Bondi Broker. In today's changing times, the importance of health and financial security has never been more important. At Bondi Broker, we work with you to improve your financial security by offering free financial health checks, assisting in reducing your debt, and gain competitive rates to improve your cash flow. Bondi Broker gets you in the best financial health so you can focus on what matters most. Visit our website today for your free consultation at bondibroker.com.au. No, oh, mate, I, I just can't believe it. I mean, obviously, you were considered a bit of a problem child or, well, a, or a thorn in people's side. I did have a habit of telling people what I thought of their views. Yeah, which didn't help in the coppers. No, no, it wasn't popular. Where did you see that boat going? Well, after, after heading to Central, I realised I was the ruby princess of criminal investigation, I thought. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's central. It, you, it just can't get any worse than central. But there was no option to get out. So I thought, oh, bugger, I'm out of here. See you later. Yeah. Take it. Re- Let's I take didn't... it on the wing. Yeah, right. So then what? Then what? Oh, a bit of private investigation. Some interesting fun. Corporate Australia was collapsing and I was quite good at fraud. So we made a few bob for a few years. Um, in the course of those couple of years, uh, we... Chased Alan Bond's assets, which is always good fun. What'd you find? Quite a lot. Um, well, not, not, nothing under his name, right? No, but a lot under the family names. And as the old investigators trick, always ring the disgruntled family member or ex-family member. So we did and found out where a lot of stuff had been buried. I, what, ex-wives? Uh, it was actually the uh, daughter's ex-husband. Oh, wow. That, well, that, that took cool. a bit of... Took a bit. Of, took a bit of investigative work to work work that out. Yeah, well, he was actually practicing as a radiologist in New Jersey when we found him. But he was a very nice fellow. Right. But you know things like that. You you, you in an investigation, if you're looking for uh, to crack a lead, you find the most potentially the most vulnerable person, and I don't mean intellectually vulnerable. You, the person you think is going to be the weakest link in the chain, and go and have a chat to them. And quite often, it's, and it happens still, you knock on the door to one side. Um, Walk in and the reaction is, well, about time you turned up. That's, <laughs> so they, that's, they all... that's, that's very, very common. You'll either get the door slammed in your face, you'll have to do a bit of salesmanship, or they think good. So, the, so the, the, people, the people who think good, obviously they, they were waiting for someone to turn up 
and it just yeah. never happened. And it, or it happens, didn't. Happen. It happens throughout my career. You, some people just they expect someone to turn up. People don't turn up, so they think, "Oh, bugger. but they so don't actually chase." You? Yeah, you've actually got to you've actually got to instigate the contact mm. once you've mm. done so. Uh, part of it also requires a degree of trust. They've they've got either one these days. They check you out on Google to see if you're not a complete stalker. Uh, but back in those days, you quite often have a cup of tea or a couple of drinks or something rather. But some of them just think, yeah, good, come on in. Yeah, right. So that, well, that's how it happened. That's happens in criminal and civil investigation. Yeah, well, I, I did check you out on Google and, and I worked out you're not a stalker, which is great. But, uh, but, but, then, but then you obviously, you did that for a little while, but what, um, what, what turned your mind towards, um, you know, taking centre stage and being, you know, moving towards, uh, you know, being on TV, uh, writing books, or was there something in between? A couple of things simultaneous. I suppose they were doing that all that investigative work. The first time I ever put my head up on television, I reminded what you reminded of the other day was the coppers. Um, there's a dreadful accident involving an Aboriginal boy, and the coppers were doing independent investigation. I was so absolutely horrified um, that the independence of it would be anything but. So I popped up on the ABC and upset this about 35 years ago, and it kicked on from there. Then I did a large criminal offence. Um, there's a case, which was 89, the Sea Beach Kindergarten out at Monavar where um, two, three teachers and a bloke were arrested for committing dreadful crimes against small children, which include oh. ritual sexual abuse, you know, and including a sacrifice of a baby. And we looked at the file, a mate of mine approached me to just read through the defence for them, and I read through it and thought, and this is how the curious the mind works. Uh, I'm reading through it, I think, oh, this brief is well strapped up. We've got all the complaints and all this and that. And I looked at it and I found out that the head of the investigation had done an enormous amount of work on it, really, really huge amounts of work. And I knew him quite well. I knew him to be the laziest son of a bitch I've ever met in my life. Hmm. So this doesn't work. He's doing a lot of work. Why? So you go back and criminal investigation always is about the chronology. And we did a chronology from day one through to arrest. And the chronology didn't support the allegations. And we came to the view after one, this is the lawyers myself, that the crime actually hadn't happened. There was not one shred of credible evidence that the crimes had happened. Yet these people had been pilloried, they were front pages of the Daily Mirror, the Sun, the coppers had leaked the story before they told their superiors. And these poor bastards have just been railroaded. And days after they were arrested, people who they'd been interviewed the week before, you know, having your kids all right, oh, yeah, yeah, nothing wrong with it. Front page of the mirror, next day, there's been terrible things done to my child. So rational people had had an epiphany. But what was missing was evidence. Um, so we ended up acting for them. And I did a lot of interviews. And I thought, well, you know, at some, at some stage in this process, these poor buggers have got to get some positive stories out there. Now, it's hard to spin something like this positively all we've got is the facts so i started working the media saying well this is what you're being told but let's have a look at the reality of this and we can back it up here's some documents here's a timeline so that's how i got embroiled in the media i thought this is good mm. managed to change you could never quite dispel this you know the smell of the charges because it was just so well marketed by the police beforehand but and about halfway through, the journalists started coming up to us and saying, what about this? Asking questions. And I got clearance from the lawyers to be quite upfront with them and tell them the truth, not to muck around. Mm. So we took the journalists into the story and said, well, what you're being told is bullshit. This is what it looks like. Uh, if you don't, and, you know, go away, you prove it yourself and then come back to me if you've got any questions. And what we found is that they were doing precisely that. And we had this great shift in reporting going from this is all terrible blah 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 to hang on this stinks and the case is eventually thrown out in the lower court which is itself unusual and we picked up a decent load of cost for the poor buggers who'd been dis disadvantaged by it so great at the end it's a case that no one won everyone mm. was damaged by it mm, mm. but i found myself doing more and more media throughout it so you know, that's how we ended up getting there at some stage it needed a rational voice 
Yeah, I, it was me. I look. I mean, it, it, thank God for for that because I, I do remember that era of hysteria over over you know uh, people who ran child minding schools and, and we, we and, had outbreaks here in the couple in the a couple in the US and one in the UK. We're doing these events and thinking the allegations are almost carbon copies. This just doesn't work. You're correct, correct, and they were relying on evidence from the little kids. Yeah, which had we and uh, one of the pivotal moments in the lower court. This is, I, I drafted the subpoena list, knowing full well what documents we were looking for. That's, a little bit of insight helped enormously, and eventually the coppers got the shits with us so badly they just threw everything in a box that used to contain a TV, which in those days required three men to lift, and so they dumped it and said, "Ha ha, go through that." So we did. Um, and in the middle of it, there was a, we pulled out a cassette tape. What the hell is this? And the cassette tape was of a copper hypnotising a four-year-old kid and interviewing them about what had happened to them. But instead of asking open questions like what happened then, the case of this happened, didn't it? So this poor kid's being uh, not manipulated. I think the copper was trying to do the right thing, but he just had no idea how to do it. So that was quite telling. So, you know, hypnotising a four-year-old kid, putting words in the kid's mouth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's that sort of thing you find. He was being led as opposed to being verbal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, verbaling, yes, yes. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, verbaling is another great police art form. <laughs> yes. both, both very useful tools in their day. <laughs> yes, I, I remember actually babysitting a murderer once and uh, I wasn't sure what was happening, but about an hour after later, we were having a lovely conversation. He was a charming fellow. Um, a detective sergeant who I was working with wanted out with a record of interview and said, do you want to sign this? And he said, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> Yeah, questions and answers, none of which he'd been present for. Uh, should I ask what uh, what he did? Uh, Leslie James Gibson. He uh, interesting fellow. He had a he had a, he had about ninety eight priors by the time we arrested him. So he's just oh, crim. Um, he got he and his mate had got pissed one night at the Royal Antler in Narrabeen, which is I think now it's called the Sands or something or other, where Peter Garrett first did his gigs. Oh, Peter Garrett. Yeah, Brett. he wasn't involved. Your mate. So he used to appear at the Sands, I think it was called in those days. Anyway, Luke and his mate got pissed. They got the shits. They thought they'd go up to meet a prostitute who was working out of Brookvale. They knocked on the door. She took one look at them and how drunk they were and said, sort of. So they set fire to a house. Um, Then they motored back and they remembered a slight from the pub earlier that evening. So they whipped a 22 out of the back of the boot, strolled into a little place in Narrabeen where the guy was living. Um, in a flat behind a fish shop, poked the 22 through the window and shot him a couple of times in the back, and that was the end of him. Right. Um, then they decided to drop their mate off home, and they didn't like him as he was walking across, so they opened fire on him as well. He got clipped a few times. Um, so it wasn't particularly hard to sort the crime out because they weren't criminal masterminds. And by the time we got to Luke the next afternoon, he was back in the Antler having a quiet schooner. And we just strolled in either side of him and he took a look at my workmate who he knew. And he said, I suppose I better put the beer down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you you obviously you obviously came across some very interesting characters. Would you say they were refined individuals? I mean, they ranged, obviously, from yeah. not sophisticated up to very sophisticated, yes? The penthouse to the shit house. Yes. yes. So, so at the opposite, at each end of the spectrum, can you actually talk about who was the smartest and who was the dumbest? Well, who came up? Who comes up for you when you're when you're asked that question? None of them really. Um, they're all flawed in their own. I suppose the, the most notorious person who I actually found I liked was Abe Sackle. Right. Um, but you know, you meet a lot of crooks and ways. Rogerson is a is a compelling character. Um, a man with a stunning criminality, a man who just doesn't give a rat's ass what he does, provided it suits him. But at the same time, residing in that frame is this chameleon, a great actor, a superb showman, utterly charming, um, and not one... Sh- is it, I, think you, I think you'd probably call, reasonably call him a sociopath. It just doesn't matter to Roger. It's all about Roger. And uh, just as a curiosity, I wrote about him a couple of times. We've met a few times. The last time Roger and I spoke up until recently, um, he'd rang me, told me what he was planning on planning on doing to me. And 
by the way, I'm going to have you whacked as well. But, oh, that's very nice, Roger. Whatever. Um, so with that in mind, a couple of years ago, after I published the last book on him, he invited me out to Long Bay for a chat. Um, How'd that go? Oh, it's remarkably well. I was there with his wife and a few other people, and Roger sort of in the in the wait in the uh, meeting room out there, at Long Bay's geriatric unit where Roger was writing, and you know, sort of stumbles stumbles in with a sort of you know two shit knees and a bad shoulder, and he sort of it's a described as a distinctive gait in court, which it is <laughs> a, like a, a land crab with a broken leg. Um, <laughs> And he walks up and smiles, shakes hands, you could shake hands, smiles, and looks at me and said, oh, so mate, you're not going to try and kill me this time. He said, ah, oh, no, mate, it was just a joke. <laughs> and like that. Um, delightful company, but at the same time, absolutely cold-blooded, emotionless killer. So he's one of the more intriguing ones to actually find someone with just no sense of remorse. But has a wife and has a family. Yeah, well, he's had two wives. He, the wife number one left him after he went inside the first time. She was a very honourable human being who had and, and two lovely daughters. They all have grown up beautifully. Um, I think she realised there was something slightly wrong with her husband when they went for a trip into town one day and they stopped for a quick, a quick beer at the um, Lord Nelson where Roger introduced them to his mate, Eddie Smith. <laughs> so, but that always, that always knocked me flat. Why in heaven's name would a detective introduce one of the worst criminals in Australian history to the family. You just don't do it. You keep church and state are kept well apart. Mm. For Roger, the blend was there. It just didn't bother him. Amazing. Uh, look, I, I think um, I, I think that, uh, you know, I mean, for, for our listeners who, who might be a little bit younger than us, um, you know, can you explain uh, who Nettie Smith was? Ah, Nettie Smith. Nettie Smith was almost a classic criminal of his age. Nettie was, um, never met his father. His father was an American serviceman, apparently, in 1944 or 45, when he was born. His mother met him one evening, and that was the only time they ever met. Mm-hmm. Um, grew up with his little brother in, little brother? Anyway, grew up with his brother and uh, with their grandmother, pretty much in Redfern. And those days, Sydney's Redfern was far from gentrified. It was, it was a slum, there's no other way around it. Yeah. Eddie was in strife from about the age you could be in strife. Uh, he was in boys' homes, which boys' homes in those days were more of a finishing school for criminals, sort of like mm. a junior rotary, rather than a place they would actually improve or socialise. Very few people came out of those places without scars. Nettie, at the age of 16, was working as a hoon, which is a lovely old expression, um, living off the earnings of a prostitute in the cross. Oh. Um, he progressed through lots of minor crimes to major crimes, lots of armed robberies, rapes, all that sort of stuff. Spent a lot of time in prison. Um, in the late 70s, um, he was encountered Roger Rogerson for the first time and they realised they had an affinity and they became a very good, very good friend. Um, Nettie did a lot of armed holdups and then he was introduced by a gentleman who's still around, so I'll just sort of keep that. Uh, he was introduced to heroin's trafficking. Heroin was just coming really on song and... Crooks who were bright, and then he was bright, realised that why would you run around with a shotgun and a balaclava and having coppers taking pot shots at you? Mm. You would actually sell huge amounts of drugs and make lots and lots of money. So Nettie became an entrepreneur rather than a doer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that propelled his life beautifully until he got seriously, seriously pissed one afternoon. And the Herald wrote it up beautifully as the world's deadliest pub crawl. And Nettie and a couple of his mates are sort of they started drinking about 11. They make their way around town and around about you know, 6 or 7 o'clock night or whatever it was, they decide to go for a run out to Randwick for dinner. Um, they're involved in a minor bingle with a tow truck out at um, in Randwick, Coogee somewhere. Um, they get out of the car full of piss and bad manners. The towie and his mate get out and um, a brawl ensues and the poor towie is stabbed to death right in the middle of the public street by Nettie. So Nettie ends up going to jail for that and a few other things came along as well. They started finding bodies out at, uh, that Nettie had buried a few years beforehand, Harvey Jones. Yeah. So Nettie's lengthy sentence grew even longer and he's still in the clink. He'll be there until he dies. He's had Parkinson's for a lot of years, but um, the old bugger's still breathing. And he is now in the prison hospital about 100 metres from where Roger is in the geriatric unit. Well, have you ever visited hey, him? They don't talk. They don't talk. 
No, no. Well, Nettie, Nettie had a terrible problem. Uh, Roger, Roger loved television. And Roger was defending himself over one of his numerous problems back in the mid-80s. And he pops up on television and he names Nettie as a police informant, which <laughs> was actually one single act that got Roger thrown out of the police force. But you don't do that. So they couldn't get him on anything else. So they turfed him on that. Nettie, the next morning, is outside his pub doing, you know, Australian publicans invariably stand outside hosing the concrete. I don't know why, but they do. Nettie's hosing the concrete and some uh, hoodlum who thought he'd make a name for himself, runs Nettie over. You're a bloody dog. Bang. And then reverses over. Nettie gets a broken leg and is not very happy. Um, so the relationship went downhill. Oh, four or five years later, Nettie is in jail, stewing. He's there for the rest of his life. He's been convicted. He's got a serious case of the shits. Um, so he writes a book, uh, and it's quite a good book, actually, uh, about his experiences with the coppers and with Roger. Uh, then there's an independent commission against corruption hearing into the relationship between police and criminals in which Nettie is the star witness. And that's that commission of inquiry plus Nettie's books were the foundation for the Blue Murder TV series. Right. And then basically dumped on his mate hard and Roger was horrified. But mm. they haven't really spoken ever since. Understandable. Mm. Mm. Understand. Understand. Uh, you, um, you've, you know, I mean, speaking of uh, Nettie Smith being the the child of a uh, American serviceman, World mm. War Two. Um, Christopher Wilder was also the, the yeah. son of a. It, uh, is that a strange coincidence? Um, no, no. It, it's unusual. It's well, I suppose maybe it's just of the period. I mean, Wilder, Wilder Wilder's father was a quite an honourable bloke. Um, um, whereas Nettie didn't know who his dad was. Wilder's father was actually out here, not because he was on leave. He'd been, a, my memory says, he was on a destroyer. He was a chief petty officer, quite a senior non-commissioned officer. He'd been at Pearl Harbor and his destroyer and got through Pearl Harbor. I think he'd been at Midway in the Battle of the Coral Sea. So the bloke had seen some action. Uh, his destroyer had its bow blown off, as I recall, limped into Darwin where they attached a wooden bow onto it, said, off you go to Sydney. And it was in Sydney that he met his uh, soon-to-be wife, who's the daughter of a tram, tram conductor, I think, from memory. And Wilder turned up in, I think, March 1945 or thereabouts. He was born in Sydney. But um, then when the war ended, he, he and his parents schlepped around various U.S. naval bases in, the US, in mainland U.S., in Hawaii, and also in uh, the Philippines. Um, so he did, Wilder didn't get back to Australia until he was about 13 or 14 and they installed him at um, Epping Boys High about the same time as Geoffrey Robinson QC was there, just as a quirk of life. Um, Strange, isn't it? They yeah, could have been friends. They could have been. Uh, Chris wasn't much of an academic and he wasn't very good at football, so he's a bit disenfranchised. But he, he liked surfing and baseball, which baseball, of course, no one knew what that was in those days. And... Um, Apparently, his fondness for surfing was um, he didn't go in the water. Everyone I've interviewed about him, this is, I love surfing, I'm a surfer. Well, that's bullshit. Um, he barely got his feet wet. <laughs> he was known as the uh, beauty queen killer. Yeah. Um, but but um, is he still alive? No, no. He had, um, after he'd, he'd committed a lot of crimes here and done a runner, and I think he's still the number one suspect for the Wanda Beach murders, which were infamous back in the 60s, 1965. Mm. He committed a lot of sexual offences around New South Wales, around Manly particularly, picking up women, trying this photographer scam. Very successful. Um, he left a lot of scars, but in 1969, he was getting a little too hot. He realised the coppers were seriously after him. So he went to, he used his US passport and headed to Florida. Um, and he, he committed back here. He got into a lot of strife here again in the early 80s got back to the US and went on this serial killing rampage across from Florida to Los Angeles and from Los Angeles to New Hampshire. Uh, and he killed lots and lots of young women. The same thing, pretty girls. He'd either get them on, lure them from the beach, a shopping mall, which is where he worked using the photographer scam. As he broke down, the scam became more direct. In one case, it was just congratulations, I had the gun get in the back of the car. Mm, mm. But in uh, April, April 13th, it was 1984, he was on the run. He was heading for the Canadian border through the uh, great, great northern woods of New Hampshire. 
Uh, the coppers had finally realised, they thought he was still on the West Coast, but he committed a couple of crimes in Upper New York State, which suddenly the FBI realised he was in fact on the other side of the country. So there was this almost, not a car chase, a sort of car chase with about you know, 40 kilometres between cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, he pulled into a service station in this tiny little town called Colebrook, which when you get there is one of the joys of writing about these things. You've got to go and have a look. And you're in this tiny little town. It's grim. It's, you know, in the middle of winter, it's just miserable. He's on the apron of a service station, getting a bit of gas, getting some directions to the Canadian border and hope to slide across this little, or possibly in those days, unmanned crossing. Um, he's there in the garage. He's on the front page. It's across the U.S., everywhere at the moment and two detectives from the state police had just been to lunch with the local cop as they're cruising back um they see him and they stop and they get out of the car the, one of the coppers looks like clint eastwood i mean he's this massive great chiseled lump of a human being he sees them they see him there's that electric moment across the forecourt of the garage and they both realize the game is on so they get closer to Wilder. There's a scuffle. Wilder pulls out this 357 Magnum, this massive gun, um, and shoots himself twice in the heart. In the scuffle, gun goes off accidentally or deliberately. No one will ever know. The bullet is so powerful, actually one of them goes through and actually knocks a detective for six as well. The detective fortunately recovers. Wilder is as dead as all get out, slumped in the, slumped in the in a Pontiac Firebird in the forecourt of a garage, and that's the end of one of the most spectacular manhunts in FBI history. You have a, a head full of stories. Yeah, it's, I suppose it's, it's just a matter of trying to get them in the right order and work out how to tell them. If you're telling them for a book, is a different storytelling method than for television. Yeah. Um, but the, but the, all, all the stories are the same in that they, there is a great story to be told through great characters. Mm. Mm. Uh, well, the trick is to sort your way through that. Well, if if you're anything like the uh, that uh, that famous song, I'd like to have a beer with Duncan. I could kill Slim Dusty for that, but I'm a bit late. Oh, no, no, <laughs> no, you are a bit late. You are a bit late. But uh, if you do enjoy a bevy or two, I could take you out and uh, you could tell me a few more stories. The salacious ones we can't publish. Yeah, that's right. Yes. The ones you can't even mention on this podcast, which gives you open license to say whatever you feel like saying. But uh, yes. but you have a you have to maintain a profile. Yes, we can't defame the living. Uh, <laughs> well, that, right? uh, well, Duncan, it's, thanks for giving us some of your time because uh, even though we have all seemed to have a little bit more time these days, but uh, thanks for giving us your time and uh, sharing some of the stories. And uh, if people want to um, get in touch with you or or buy your books. Have you got a website or where, how do they find uh, you? Uh, bookshops. 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 Good old fashioned bookshops. Yeah. Remember them? Do they still exist, Duncan? Do they still exist? One of the greatest pleasures of my life was to walk down to Dimmocks a couple of months ago and said that after a seven day hiatus, they'd reopened. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Don't, proud. It, it, Duncan, usually we finish off with, oh, this is Brett's question. Maybe you should uh, ask no, the question. Well, usually we finish off with, um, you know, people uh, telling us their, their favourite song and the reason why they chose it. So do you have a favourite song? And no, I have lots of favourites. Lots of them. Okay. I guess in, in, in context. So which one do you choose today? I look probably safe to sit with the Sinatra track I sent you. Okay. okay. With One for the road. One for the road. Very good. Yes. Is, well, it, is that something you used to say a lot in pubs? Clubs? Uh, um, yeah, still do. Well, I, I <laughs> don't say it as often as I used to, but yes. We're always noted for it. Everyone I know seems to be noted. I'll just have one more for the road. God, that right. I'm, I, I'm with you, brother. One more for the road. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Duncan. Thanks for your time. And, uh, and George, will, if you see George in the street, cr- cross as quickly as you possibly can. I'm the one with the white pooch, oh, the one that's scared of everyone. Well, that's all. Dogs and I get on fine. <laughs> how, does he, how does the pooch cope with these grumpy Italians? With the no, not, a, not well. No, no, it shits itself. Yeah. Shits itself all the time. Yeah. Anyway. Well, not I've, unlike I've its the... owner, really. <laughs> <laughs> I do after the Italian. 
Yeah, yeah, they can be a bit rough. <laughs> oh, oh, Duncan. Okay. Thanks, Duncan. All right, on that note, Duncan, thank Absolute you very pleasure. much. Thanks, thank you. Thanks, mate. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.